Hello and welcome to this episode of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW Brattleboro LP 107.7 FM. I am your host Olga Peters and I have with me today in the studio co-host Emily Kornheiser. Hi Emily. Hi Olga and I am here to remind everyone listening that the views and brilliant opinions expressed on this show are those of the speakers and not those of the radio station. Yes, it's very important for people to remember that because if we have anything, we have opinions. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And today we will be speaking with State Auditor Doug Hoffer about some of the economic incentives that the state has been working on and whether or not they are effective. Emily, right before we bring Doug on, would you please just frame for folks what we're doing in this off session with the happy hour? Absolutely. So we are spending the somewhere between six and three months of the off session really going in deep on what are the essential frameworks, assumptions, norms, behaviors of Vermont politics and Vermont constituents and Vermonters that shape how we have policy discussions so that when we go back to Montpelier in January, which is very soon, (laughs) so soon, soon, (laughs) we will be able to sort of go deeper onto the day-to-day issues that are really popping up in the legislature. We'll feel like we've laid that groundwork. So we spent the first month talking about public participation, what that means, what that looks like, how to make it meaningful given how different folks' lives are now, whether that's at the town meeting level or whether that's testifying in committee. We had great conversations about free speech, about the media, and about meetings. And then we talked about... Morality. Morality. Yeah, those were some fun ones. Yes, legislating morality and how often we do that and whether or not it's effective. And so we talked about drugs and sex and all kinds of great things, public space. And then over the last month, we've been talking about money, which for better or for worse, I think mostly for worse is what makes the world go around. Mm -hmm. And so we talked about the budget and how the budget's constructed, what the different different flows in are, how taxes work, how school taxes are different from other taxes. That's been really fun. One of the pieces of Vermont's economy, or one of the pieces about Vermont taxes, is that you need an economy to create taxes generally. It's a good idea, at least for a starting point. That's what people say. (laughs) That's at least how capitalism works. And so we um, have State Auditor Doug Hoffer on to talk to us about some pieces of his views on what economic development looks like and what it might mean to grow Vermont's economy or make it vibrant. Because he has had a lot of strong opinions as of late, and I think historically. Mm -hmm. So State Auditor Doug Hoffer, welcome to the show. Thank you. I was unaware that happy hour started this early, but... uh, (laughs) I'm enjoying it so far. It's always happy hour when you're talking about democracy. Or economic development. And Emily, let me just say that, um, yes, I do have opinions, but they are evidence-based. Oh. That's the point. Absolutely. Uh, As are mine. <laughs> so no, I mean that quite seriously. I know, I know you, you do. You do. And, and you recently uh, released a couple of reports, one about the remote uh, workers program, incentive program, as well as One Care uh, Vermont that are really worth a read if anyone um, would would be interested in that. But before we bring you on, Doug, 
uh, or before we dive into the conversation, could you just tell our listeners, for those who don't know, what does the state auditor's um, office do? And how did you end up a state auditor? And let me preface your answer, Doug. I am asking because I think you have the funnest job in state government, so I want to know how someday I can be a state auditor. <laughs> well, I, I agree. Uh, as to what we do, uh, that's a very good question. A lot of people don't know. Uh, they, they just assume that we are green eyeshade types who follow the money. And in fact, the two largest uh, jobs required of my office are now and have been for many years farmed out to uh, a large independent audit firm. It was KPMG for many years, and now it's CLA, Clifton Larson Allen. And they do uh, two very important uh, audits. One is required by the federal government, which is a compliance audit uh, tracking all of the federal money we get, which is quite substantial, as you know, Emily. The other is an audit of the state's financial statements, which Wall Street likes a lot. Uh, And both of these are important, but to me, they're boring. Uh, just personally. <laughs> I, I say that because if that was the focus of the office, I would never have run for the job. The good news is that starting, well, actually starting almost 20 years ago, I did some work for a former state auditor, Ed Flanagan, in the 90s. And that's when auditors around the country, not all of them, but some of them began to think about and understand the importance of uh, not just stopping with analyzing or reviewing the flow of funds in and out. That's the beginning of the conversation because that doesn't tell you anything about what you're getting for those expenditures. It's performance auditing that is the most interesting to me. Obviously, you want to make sure that the monies uh, are accounted for uh, appropriately, but that's the beginning of a much more interesting conversation. So what we do uh, with my very limited in-house staff of only 10 professional auditors for the whole state uh, is to do performance auditing of state programs, state departments. Some of it is in the nature of nuts and bolts of the, the operations of a large organization like the state. But the more interesting stuff, although no less important uh, than the first, is uh, programmatic performance auditing. So that's a nutshell what we do. What is programmatic performance auditing for our listeners? Well, for example, um, this remote worker uh, grant program uh, is a decision by the legislature to expend funds, uh, hopefully, to achieve certain ends. The question then is, can you measure the effectiveness or cost-effectiveness and the performance of that program? Sometimes it's very challenging. Uh, Often, in terms of economic development, it's very challenging. And that's why we, as I think you may recall, uh, Emily, we put out a very lengthy report last year. I think it came after the session, uh, which is always a challenge to get everybody's attention when you guys are so tired and you go home. But... uh, for many, many years, I've been working on policy uh, stuff related to economic development and, and tax and uh, related issues before I took this job, and I began in January of 13, having been elected in 12. And uh, economic development is tough, but a number of the state's programs are very difficult for auditors to evaluate, mm-hmm. and there are reasons for that. It doesn't mean that the programs are inherently bad. It just means that they're based on a foundation which is very challenging to document For example, the state's biggest business incentive program, Veggie, the Employment Growth Incentive, is predicated on a statement from the applicant companies that if not for this incentive, we would not create these jobs or make this capital investment, the so-called but-for statement. Well, the only way to verify that is to get access to private corporate documents and conversations in their boardroom, which I I don't have access to. So I can't say, if asked, how's that program doing? Well, the parent organization, not the parent, but the organization that uh, receives applications and approves them, uh, the Economic Progress Council, would tell you 
that there's no cost to the people of Vermont for that program because none of that economic activity would occur without their incentive. Well, I would counter by saying the most respected uh, researcher in the country on these issues is named Tim Bartik. He works for the Upjohn Institute. And last year, he uh, it's a good thing we have an hour because sometimes I go on. And if I do, just tell me to stop. Oh, no, we will. We'll interrupt you. Don't worry. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I'm very good at it. Uh, he felt finally after many, many years of uh, states all over the country having incentive programs like this, that there was sufficient research, some of it by him, for him to do basically a meta-analysis of 30 different studies, specifically addressing the but-for and its effectiveness. And this guy is really good at what he does, and I've seen his work for many years, and if you, if you check the number of times his work is cited by other professionals, you'll see how well-respected he is. But he looked at these 30 studies, and his conclusion was that at best, uh, somewhere between 2 and 25% of all of the economic activity uh, that is supposedly incented by these programs, that's about as much as you can expect would have happened uh, with, as a result of the incentives. In other words, 75 to 98% of all of that activity would have happened anyway. Hmm. And that's so, the bottom line. just to clarify for our listeners, because the but-for... Um, become sort of a phrase and meaning in and of itself between people. And I think it's a little confusing from the outside. So essentially what you're saying is that in order to get these funds, businesses need to say and ideally prove that there's no way they would engage in any of this wealth creation or job creation if they didn't get that incentive from the state. Correct. And so... These studies, however, are pointing to the fact that about 80% of that wealth creation, job creation, CEO, ego creation would have happened regardless of whether or not the state intervened. Correct. And that shouldn't surprise you. I don't think it does. Or other people, because let's be honest, business people are not stupid or crazy. Uh, if you have a business that is presented with an opportunity because you're the demand for your goods and services is outstripping your capacity, whether it's the size of your manufacturing facility or the number of people you have providing the service. Uh, the only thing to do if you choose to grow, and not all businesses choose to grow, is to grow. You have to make an investment. You have mm -hmm. to find the money, whether it's equity or debt, and then you have to hire people. Businesses don't hire people unless there's demand for their goods or services. Mm -hmm. That would make no sense at all. It's just nonsensical. So for a company to come in, and let, let's face it, here's two good examples. Uh, Dealer.com in Burlington is a wildly successful company, although they laid off a few people recently. They're still doing rather well, by all accounts. And what was great Well, as a company, coffee. at least. Maybe not the people both, working there. Yeah. Both yeah. of those companies were on really steep um, curves growing for about 10 years or more. And they just kept growing. And that suggests that the people who started the companies and who ran them were smart, capable, they had a good business plan, they did everything right, and the world was their oyster. Well, during that period, both of those companies came to Vepsi on several occasions and said, boy, without your help, we can't grow. Well, that sort of calls into question something referred to as the background growth rate. Vepsi, for its part, by statute, is required to look at the history of the company's growth but only for two years. Uh, so, you know, if you're, deal if you're looking at dealer.com or Green Mountain Coffee back in the day, uh, you can see quite clearly that they're growing like crazy. Now, 
even with that, sometimes what they uh, accompany, not them necessarily, would come into Vepsi and say, boy, we're looking at another location in New Hampshire or Texas or whatever the heck it is. And, you know, we'd like to stay here, but boy, we, you know, something's got to tip the balance for us. So how do you prove that? Mm-hmm. How do you determine with certainty that, that they will move if they don't get the money? You can't. No. And I think an interesting thing about the background growth rate that I'd like to sort of draw as a parallel to a previous conversation we had on the show when we had Drew Wesley on to talk about state contracts mm-hmm. and how state grants are sort of held accountable for outcomes is the background growth rate is basically what would happen if we did nothing. Right. right. What is sort of the natural trajectory of things exactly. given all of the factors that are at play right now? And then what would happen if we intervene? And generally, in almost any system, you need to have either a really, really good lever to pull or an enormous amount of resources in order to change the natural trajectory of anything, whether it's a social system or a business. Mm-hmm. Correct. Now, I'm, it's, it's unfortunate, but most, actually almost all of the materials that are submitted to VEPSI by applicants and outcomes are deemed confidential by statute. So even though I can get access to them to research this, and in fact I'm about to start a project, I can't discuss company-specific issues. Mm -hmm. But I can say, for example, uh, I reviewed, uh, do you remember a few years back when Governor Shumlin was given by the legislature several million dollars in what was called the Enterprise Fund, which, for lack of a better word, was basically a slush fund for the governor to use when he thought that there was a a company at risk of leaving or whatever the case may be. And one company came forward and I reviewed the materials they submitted to the state. And one of the things they said was, boy, one of our greatest assets are our employees. Well, Mm -hmm. that's a good thing to say. Mm -hmm. And they said, but boy, labor sure is cheap in Texas. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know? I don't know. I'm laughing. I shouldn't laugh. But uh, so my point is that whilst we may get some benefit from that particular program, as an auditor, and we require evidence, I can't tell you how effective it is. And that's important because if you can't evaluate, honestly, the return on that investment, then how do you know if you're spending too much, too little, or just the right amount? And furthermore, and, and perhaps more importantly, is we know there are investments that a state can make where there is a certain return on investment. There's simply no question about it. It can be measured and quantified. So we don't so, know, because we can't communicate, even if you are able to audit the trail, you can't communicate it clearly to the public. That means that we don't know if we are making evidence-based decisions, and we also don't know, so basically being effective, and we also don't know as citizens, if our tax money is being put to good use. So trust in government gets um, a little yeah, it's interesting that you say that, because I see often uh, on the, uh, not the blogs, but websites for VT Digger and Seven Days and, and other things of that nature, that people, many people, are suspicious of these programs, in mm-hmm. part, I think, because they're, they're opaque, they're not transparent. But there are those who think, boy, you know, we need more incentives because they've heard the rallying cry now. It really started in the Reagan years, back that far, these kinds of incentives. Uh, and huge competition mm-hmm. uh, between states for mm-hmm. very, very large multinational corporations where the incentives are mind-boggling in the billions of dollars, uh, where it's just absurd to even imagine that you're going to get your money back. But uh, they play the my, game. 
favorite lines about that is that in Vermont, we don't have the scale to ever win at a race to the bottom. Right. <laughs> like we're just never going to be able to do it. That is not no. the resources that we have, whether those are financial or social resources. We will never no, win a race to the bottom, even against New York State. So well, I want to, you know, we, we hear a lot about New York State, but there's a lot of information about the failure of many of those programs. Oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. I don't think we should try to race to the bottom. But even if we wanted to try, I don't think we would win. No. So, Doug, I'd like to pivot a little bit to another uh, program that you've just done a report on and has gotten a lot of play in the press, and that's the Remote Workers Incentive Program. And um, if I have my numbers correct, so far, that program, which was instituted in or approved in 2018, uh, has raised Vermont's population by 290 people which one could argue, well, it was made to raise our population, and it did. What are your thoughts on this program, having, ju having just dug into it? And because it's a state program working with individuals, were you able to get more information? Because it was... Yeah, we know we got what, everything we needed. Mm -hmm. uh, all state government is required to give our office anything we request. No, no records can be withheld from the state auditor's office, none. Not even attorney-client privileged materials. Oh, wow. Uh, now, that doesn't mean so that they do it happily or they do it without, uh, you know, saying, well, let's sign this MOU, you know, this Memorandum of Understanding. And this, for example, we can access personnel records. We can access private health records just for analysis, not, not about individuals, mm -hmm. so-called HIPAA. Uh, we can access tax records, and all those folks are understandably and appropriately concerned about the protection of people's privacy. So we go into uh, uh, discussions with them and sign MOUs, and we're not in the business of disclosing that information. We don't do that. Mm -hmm. As for the program, uh, yes, they have claimed that the population has increased 290 people. Let me ask you this, Emily. For all those people, uh, some of whom have been interviewed and allowed themselves to suffer exposure for this kind of thing, some are applauding them. And by the way, I would say welcome to them that are here in Vermont. We're not talking about them individually. We're talking about a program. Uh, but they are all now living in houses and apartments and condos that were there before they came. So unless we know something about the people that lived in those uh, homes and houses before them, we don't know that we have 290 more people. Some of those people might have been ready to retire and leave, as lots of older people do. They go to Arizona, Florida, wherever they go. Uh, so I, I, you know, that's the kind of thing that economic development officials are, are fond of saying. They make assumptions without facts. The other piece of this that uh, I'm really interested in is, I know there isn't, you know, but for is a sort of technical legal economic development term in the context of particular programs. But I think the idea of but for is quite interesting here. Is it actually the money that caused folks to decide to move to Vermont versus somewhere else? Well, let's put it this way. Uh, there's an interesting provision in statute that says you can't even apply. Uh, it only started in January 1st of this year, but you couldn't even apply until you could prove you were a resident. So you already moved to Vermont without the program money. And everyone who applied knew that it was first come, first served, there was a limited amount of money, and there was no certainty whatsoever that those applicants would get any money. They crossed their fingers and said, boy, that would be nice if somebody would pay for my moving costs and so forth, but they couldn't count on it. I'm certain that a lot more people... And they uh, certainly had to have the money to front it. Right. Exactly. That's the point. Mm -hmm. uh, so they had the will and the means uh, to come here. 
And that's fine. I'm glad they did. But, you know, what's kind of interesting is the people who uh, proposed this program and those who are now championing it um, don't talk much about the fact that, on average, according to a recent report by the Joint Fiscal Office, almost 9,000 people a year move to Vermont. Right? Yeah, we don't hear that data very often, do we? No, but you, my point is that it's not as if no one's coming here. For goodness sake, lots of people come here of many ages, including people with money. And I think Public Assets is actually about to come out with a report about that. I think Stephanie They've mentioned that. They've talked about it for yeah. years, but yeah. I, I encourage you, if you haven't seen it, check the JFO report. It just came out in September, some very good data. And, it, and there's some very good comparative data with other New England states and, in some cases, the 50 states, so which we rarely see, which is why the whole uh, debate, if, if you can call it that, argument about migration is very poorly understood because mm-hmm. it's often discussed only in terms of Vermont. You know, fill in the blank. These people are leaving because it's those pesky liberals or the <laughs> progressives or, or it's anti-business climate in Vermont. Well, the fact is, lots of Vermonters uh, are from New Hampshire. Yes, mm-hmm. it's very, I live, we live here on the border and so become very aware of sort of who lives in New Hampshire and who lives in Vermont and, and who's in migration back even. and forth and yeah. who's in Massachusetts. Yeah. And right. um, yeah, it's very easy for one to move one side to the border or the other here, and it, it does not tend to happen that way. No, and also, as I noted in the report, as we noted in the report, uh, of the people that whose records we reviewed in the program, uh, we stopped looking with uh, August applications, uh, a significant number of them came from states with no income tax. Now, if, if Vermont was so burdensome, why would they possibly have come here for a couple grand? Yeah. It's a very good question. <clears throat> yeah. I like asking good questions. (laughs) So I want to talk more about remote workers, but I also realize that you never quite answered the first question that we asked you. So before we take a break to breathe and hear about the incredible people who support this radio station, I would love for you to tell us what made you want to become a state auditor? How did you get where you are? You want that now or after the I want that now. Yeah, we want that now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, I don't know how much of my story you want, but... The um, whole thing. Hmm? The whole thing, if you want oh. to tell it. Yeah. <laughs> Even that I dropped out of high school in yes, 1967? Yes, please. Yes. That's the best oh. part. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I did, and I took 12 years off and had a great time, by the way, and that was a great time to be a free-range teenager, and uh, ended up at age 30 entering Williams College, which I expect you know it's not too far from you guys mm-hmm. how, does, how does one go from being essentially dropped out to williams college uh <laughs> i can't give you all of that information okay. it's quite impressive i will say well i was living in the berkshires uh okay. i was the maitre d at alice's restaurant her third restaurant and some Aww. of your viewers are too young to know that oh but yes we know that <laughs> you know that it is and, the and of williams was just up the road and uh, I was aware of its reputation, and they had a great golf course, by the way, which is always important to me. And I said, what the heck, I'm ready to go to college. I've waited long enough, and this place has tremendous resources, and they gave me a, a full scholarship, which helped a lot, because uh, I couldn't have afforded it otherwise. But uh, I enjoyed that experience immensely and, and was ready for it, as I think you probably would agree. Some young people who go to college right out of high school aren't ready for it and don't take full advantage, and I did. And I loved it. And, and then I went to law school knowing I wasn't going to practice, but I, I wanted it as preparation for doing policy work. And, uh, and then I only applied for one job out of law school, and that was to work in City Hall in Burlington when Bernie was mayor and Peter Clavel was the head of CETO. Mm-hmm. 
I really didn't have a backup plan. <laughs> I'm glad that one worked. <laughs> good, good thing genuinely glad that one worked. So I stayed in City Hall for five years and had a tremendous experience. And then Peter Clavell lost to Peter Brownell, and I said, you know, it's time to go. I, I started working on my own and worked um, as a sole proprietor doing policy work for 19 years, worked at home wearing sweatpants and golf shirts and played a lot of golf because I could work any time of the day and weekends and so forth. And at the end of that, or near the end of that period, I, w- I was aware, and, and by the way, one of my early clients, as I mentioned earlier, was uh, Ed Flanagan, who was mm-hmm. then state auditor. And uh, that was my first exposure to the nuts and bolts of state government, and I, I saw there was a real need for this kind of work. And my predecessor um, bothered me for a lot of reasons, and I thought, you know, I can do a better job, so I ran against him. But he was the son of a governor. He was an incumbent, and as you know, incumbents at state level usually fare pretty well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I wasn't that well-known <clears throat> outside the policy circle. I did pretty well. I think I got 46% of the vote uh, first time out in 2010. And uh, I ran again in 12, and by that time he had decided to leave. And I ran against a very tenured, I think the, the senior member of the state senate, Vince Aluzzi, whose committee I had uh, testified in many, many times, and I, I liked Vince, but I uh, thought I was a better candidate for the job, and so did the voters. So uh, here I am. Well, thank you for that, Doug. So we're going to hear a word from our underwriters, but when we come back, let's talk a little bit more about the remote workers program, but then also what does it mean to actually design an accountable economic development program? And if Vermont was to really start pulling its economic levers or levers, however you want to say it, uh, what ones should we be pulling first? Sure. Happy to. Fantastic. We shall return in a moment. WBEWLP is underwritten in part by Zephyr Design. 257-9254. And on that sharp note... (laughs) We are back to the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEWLP Brattleboro 107.7 FM. I'm your host, Olga Peters. My co-host is Representative Emily Kornheiser from Brattleboro. And our guest on today's show is State Auditor Doug Hoffer. Welcome back to the show, Doug. Thank you. It's happy hour, but I can't find my waiter. <laughs> uh, now that just is wrong. <laughs> we, we're called the happy hour partly because when we first started, it was just a podcast. We weren't doing live radio, and we would air the, each new week's podcast at 5 o'clock every Friday. I see. Okay. And but you liked the name to, so much, you stuck with it. Oh, yes. And we were yeah. very <laughs> diligent about having the drink that we would talk about every week, each new week. But spending, All the different ways democracy used to drive us to drink. Is that what you're saying, Emily? I think that, I think that is it. And spending a little less time in Montpelier, I am drinking a little less, honestly. And so I don't always have an inspirational cocktail to share anymore. We'll but I'm sure I will in January. January. Yes. <laughs> so, um, Doug, Emily and I were talking uh, during the break, and Emily brought up a really great point that... Many people consider the remote worker program effective because of the amount of earned media that we received from it. Uh, Emily, just kind of rephrase that question for Doug. So the conversations that I heard and I suppose participated in were fully transparently were the idea that it doesn't occur to people to live here, that many people think this is a great place to visit. 
And we need to make sure that more folks outside of Vermont understand that Vermont is a great place to live, which I think many of us who live here agree with. That's part of the reason we might be here. And so a big part of Remote Worker was the idea of advertising to the wider world this sticky idea that Vermont's a place that people live and work. And so... And then the next step in that was this idea that our innovative program, and I'm putting innovative in some quotes here, because I remember when North Dakota did it 10 years ago, <laughs> um, that this program garnered a huge amount of earned media. And I absolutely agree. It did. Yes, it but did. But the dollar value on the earned media felt a little squishy to me. And so I'm curious about the idea of auditing the value of earned media. Well, a couple of things. First, uh, for those who believe that nobody knows about Vermont, how do they explain the eight or 9,000 people a year who move here? There's That's that. one. The, the other is, uh, I don't think I'm alone in having heard a lot of negative responses to the announcement of this program. Some people were laughing at us. Hey, if Vermont is so cool and hip and beautiful, why do you have to pay people to move there? <laughs> Honestly, I oh, did. Oh, no, I remember I, laughing at North Dakota 10 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, uh, and, and more importantly, perhaps, um, media hits don't create jobs. And that leads to a, a sidebar, because as you know, Emily, I'm sure, we spend over $3 million a year on tourism and marketing. And about half of that is actually in marketing and advertising. The rest is in staff and overhead and things. And that's one of the other programs in Vermont that I said in, in the cover letter to this report last year, it is impossible for me to evaluate the success of that program, the expenditures, for the simple reason that, as we know from the economic census, the travel and tourism industry, which is immense and very important for Vermont, I would never say otherwise, those folks are in business, and you can't stay in that business and be successful without spending money for advertising and marketing. The information I have is that they spend uh, between 80 and $100 million a year, the private sector. How can I possibly evaluate the impact of our $3 million in the context of that massive expenditure? I've talked to the state's economist or the legislature's economist, Tom Covet, about this, and we agree there is no methodology to answer the question. What are we getting for that? So before people you know, want to persuade us that all that free media is so valuable, you know, first, some of it was negative, and second, uh, it doesn't create jobs as opposed to some other things, which is what I keep saying, Emily, and you've heard me say this, we should never talk about one of these programs, whether it's remote worker, travel and tourism, and so forth, without a larger context. Mm -hmm. uh, these folks in state government come into the money committees every year and say, well, we had $3 million last year, you know, we'd love to have 3.2 this year. Well, okay, that's fine, but how else could we spend that money? Because, you know, we can't, we don't know the effectiveness of the $3 million you spent last year. Although they would have you believe that it's very successful, but I, I don't agree. Uh, so that's really my pitch to you and your colleagues year after year, and it, I don't seem to be getting through, <laughs> that <laughs> there are, as I said before, some quantifiable things that we should be doing instead of some of this other stuff, in my opinion. So that brings us to another question that Emily and I have had, Doug, is what systems need to be put into place when the state comes up with an economic development incentive plan program whatever you want to call it what needs to be put in place so that it is accountable 
Well, a couple of things. I'm really glad you asked that. One is that, um, as you know, the Joint Fiscal Office, which does really good work, is limited, as are many things uh, in state government. They don't really provide direct staff support for Emily's committee, House Commerce, or its counterpart in the Senate, Senate Economic Development, or some of the others that make so these nice important decisions. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're there primarily for appropriations and ways and means and finance. So I have seen over the years, on occasion, when a very large bill comes through, sometimes from a governor and the legislature says, boy, we don't know, we need more information, what they do is ask either JFO staff or Tom Cavett, the legislature's economist, to do a fiscal note. And that is to say, okay, here are the six proposals that are before the legislature this year in this area. What can you tell us, Tom, based on the research that's out there in the world and other states' experiences and so forth, about the likelihood uh, of a good return on investment? That's a fiscal note, and they don't do that very often. I can't do anything in advance because we don't audit looking forward. We can only look, you know, audit looking back. But I would strongly recommend, Emily, that you talk with your, your colleagues about getting more resources at a JFO for things like this. And they have some good people in-house. It doesn't have to be Tom. Good point. So that's one way to make um, much more evidence-based decisions about economic right. development programs. Any other I ways? think your other question was, you know, what else could we or should we do with the money? Yeah. And that's partly what I did, what we did in this report last year, is look at the peer-reviewed literature and so forth and look at a bunch of the major approaches to economic development and see what uh, is out there. One of the and things that was really interesting to me when we talked about this very issue in committee is I think there was some consensus, and I might even say some consensus across party lines around the big picture issues that do really make a difference for economic development, child care, housing, training. Exactly. And those things cost so much more money than these little programs that don't necessarily work. But if you combine the money of the five (laughs) programs I identified in the cover letter of this report, it's almost $15 million a year. That's true. Wow. That, in my view, now that's not much money, as Emily knows, in in the context of a $6 billion state budget, uh, a fair bit of which is education and federal money, but it's not peanuts either. Mm -hmm. Uh, Think about what you could do with $15 million if you devoted half of it to affordable housing over the next 10 years. Well, I mean, what what housing does, by the way, is not only uh, increase the supply of much-needed housing that's affordable to people who are just working folks and and others, but it puts people to work immediately. And there's a very powerful multiplier for uh, residential construction. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you get a 100-year asset. Now, anybody who doesn't get that... uh, either isn't thinking clearly or has started happy hour way too early. <laughs> uh, another one would be related to energy, energy efficiency. Wait, wait, before you jump in, can we, can we explain a little bit what a multiplier is for folks? Oh, sure. So I'm sorry. Uh, there's the now, jobs that are created when we're building those people. And then the people who have jobs are then spending more money because they have more money in their pocket. There's the tax base that gets increased because we have new buildings that people are paying property taxes on. What are other ways we might think about how well, $1 the, the first spent step multiplies is, uh, The direct expenditure is the cost of building the, the house or condos or whatever it may be. But to some extent, um, all the materials needed to construct that unit 
much of it comes from elsewhere. We don't manufacture uh, refrigerators in Vermont, for example. But wood products, yes, we do. Uh, and a number of other things that are necessary for the use in the construction of that home. So there are direct expenditures and benefits, indirect, and, and what you were referring to is, is the third level down, because all the people who are getting paid to build the house then go spend the money. And it circulates through the economy. And it's very powerful. Uh, you know, people talk about how important it is to have entities like IBM, for example, like Global Foundries, rather, uh, that sell a product outside Vermont or outside the country because it brings money into Vermont, and that's true. On the other hand, money retained in Vermont and circulated is just as powerful. Mm-hmm. So here's a, a question I I have, and I guess it's to you, Doug, but it could also be to Emily, that I often feel... You know, economies are such these interlocking mechanisms and systems between what people have in their pocket to spend, the jobs that are being created, uh, what support systems people need um, to do the work that they need to do. There's all these things that are interconnected. And yet it feels sometimes that our economic planning in Vermont is very kind of happens in silos. And so I'm wondering, Doug, is there a way to um, plan for economic development that's a little more interconnected? Or are there levers we should be pulling in a certain order, like raise wages first and then work on something else? I mean, what, what do you see as a, a good path forward so Vermont can get the best return of, on investment, basically? Well, it's a good question. We have to acknowledge that there are limits to what a state can do not only because we are in a federal system, but we're also in a global economy. Uh, You mentioned wages, for example. Uh, Emily and her colleagues can raise the minimum wage, and that will have a ripple effect on those uh, nearest that wage level. But we can't control wages throughout the economy. (coughs) So I think, and and I say this a lot, uh, the state should focus on the things it it can do and can do well. Mm -hmm. And that includes things like infrastructure. Uh, we made a huge mistake years ago deciding to try to let the private sector deal with broadband in Vermont. They had an alternative, and they ignored it, and that was for the state itself to pay to lay fiber everywhere and then lease that capacity to private sector users uh, you know, or providers of services over that. So they just missed it because there's always uh, the default setting mostly here and elsewhere is, oh, let the private sector do it. Well, sometimes uh, the private sector is not best able to do that, and I think that's one of them. Housing, but the other stuff is is foundational. We can't pick winners and losers. You know, industries come and go, Mm -hmm. technologies come and go, uh, trade deals come and go. The things that really affect the economy are way beyond the control of a state, even one as big as California. Currency exchange rates, trade agreements, interest rates, the federal budget, we have no control over any of that stuff. So rather than picking and choosing at the margins and saying, oh, let's give this company a few bucks and let's spend a little money to attract these 68 people or whatever it is, you know, that's not going to change the curve at all. So since we know that we don't have control over the big stuff, let's think 20 or 30 years down the road. What are the most important things we can do, right? And they're all fundamentals and they're related to housing and uh, the development of human capital, whether that's workforce education and training or child care quality child care, health care, those are the things we should do. If, if, you know, the governor and others and lots of legislators talk about, well, we've we got to attract more people. Well, what do families really care about? They care about safety, quality of life, and a quality of education. 
And we've been having a 30 or 40 year very intense conversation about how much to spend for education and how to raise the money. I wish, I really wish there were a similar conversation about the quality of education. Why can't the three parties get together and independence and commit together to make Vermont's public education system the best in the country? And I don't mean by a little bit, I mean by a lot. And if we did that and made a generation-long commitment, they'd be lining up at the borders. It's true. But we don't hear that. We squabble about these little, you know, piddly things at the margins, like the remote worker programs. It doesn't make any sense to me. And I say that with respect for Michael Sorotkin, the senator who's pushing it, who's a friend of mine, actually, and I like him and respect him. But I think he's missing it on this one. Sorry, I do get carried away. No, that was, we, we love honest carry, carrying away. <laughs> <laughs> and I've heard rumor that our listeners actually really enjoy it, too. They find a different tone on this show than they might get other places, and they enjoy it. Well, you know, it's funny you asked about how I ended up uh, ending up in this position. Yes. For many years when I was doing work uh, in economic development and tax policy, policy-related stuff, uh, reporters would call, and I'd do op-eds and commentaries and things. And if they knew that if they kept me on the phone long enough, I'd say something crazy or provocative or evocative. And I would always finish with saying, I don't care. I'm not running for anything. <laughs> <laughs> and yet you still do it. And I think that's one of the things I appreciate about you. Um, so I agree with a lot of what you're saying here. And I've been so struck in my... Um, time working with state government before I ran for office and now in my first year in the legislature, uh, how hard it is for us to look long term. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yep. You guys just put out fires mostly. Yes. And so I've been thinking a lot about what good process might look like for us, how the caucus could be more effective in thinking long term, how committees might be able to extend their horizons because we need to be legislating for the future not for now our legislation is not going to go into effect the day we say it and um That's powerful so change i takes think i need time. to go make a drink or something now. <laughs> <laughs> that's fantastic can i offer a suggestion yes please that's where i'm going here all right about uh, i don't know 10 or 12 years ago i became aware of something called i think there were two states that were doing it at the time called the unified economic development budget and it recognized that, just as you say, whether it was you or Olga uh, said, that there are silos. And that's even true in a small state for a comparatively modest effort like economic development, which you know, pales before transportation and energy and a few other things. But each year, they come in from not just the Agency of Commerce, but other departments for lots of things related to economic development. And at no point do you and your colleagues on commerce or your colleagues over in appropriations get a chance to see it holistically. So I suggested to Vince Saluzzi, as a matter of fact, that he championed something called the Unified Economic Development, which asked only three questions. How much are we spending for what, and what are we getting for it? And the first two were ably done by uh, Sue Zeller, who's no longer in finance and management, but she was the deputy to Jim Reardon, who was the commissioner at the time, and she did the number crunching. And I won't say it's easy, but it's easier than the third part. Uh, saying something knowledgeable and reliable about performance in economic development is quite challenging. But that's Sue Zeller's job now. Yeah, but not, although she doesn't do that work, she sort of shepherds people yes, through the Yes, absolutely. Um, but economic development, the agency at that time did a very poor job. It, it was frankly laughable. And they stopped it after three years. I think the then uh, secretary of the agency asked Vince, in fact, the same guy who helped get it going, although 
It was Mark Larson, of all people, who you may not know. He's I do not. been out of the ledge for years. Anyway, he got it in, and then they stopped doing it because they didn't want to do the work, I think, of the answering the third question, what are we getting for it, and they didn't really have the tools. And I'm not even sure they were devoted to it. I think they're bad people. And the legislature gets many reports that we do not read or discuss effectively. And if I was the person producing those reports that weren't being read or used to make decisions, I would grow more and more resistant to the production of said reports. Oh, indeed. But this one is intended to address your very important question. How do we look longer term? And how do we make better informed decisions about admittedly scarce resources? Thank you. So That seems like an easy thing to get done. Um, <laughs> In the grand scheme of things, you know. <laughs> compared now to I other things to get done? Compared to a living wage, you know. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> uh, compared to raising the minimum wage or paid family leave even. Hmm. Do you know it's been... I just got to look. Let's see. It's been... Um, let's see. 23 years since I wrote the first job gap study about the livable wage. Yeah. 23 years. How are we doing on that? Yeah, so... It feels further away than ever. What What's actually changed or not? Well, actually, there are some people who believe in the concept, uh, Ben and Jerry's, for example, uh, even after the sale to Unilever some years ago, uh, some holdover uh, members of that, the new board from the old Ben and Jerry's board said, you know, we're only going to approve this if you continue paying a livable wage. The city of Burlington has a livable wage ordinance for contractors and its own employees. And there are a few others around the state. And, of course, JFO publishes the report every other year on it. Uh, so some people do use it, but it's... Even back then, people said, oh, you know, what are you going to do uh, if you hit a wall and the legislature can't or won't mandate a livable wage? And I said, that's easy. This process of building the basic needs budget tells you where people are stressed, and we know that. It's mm-hmm. in health care, it's in housing. Uh, transportation and so forth. So that's where the state can and should make investments to relieve some of that burden. But as a rule, when we hear about affordability, it's almost always about taxes. Taxes, yeah. yeah. That's because some people are better at messaging than other people, I think. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for reminding me. Yeah. <laughs> so Emily and Doug, we have just about five minutes left in the show. I want to make sure that, uh, Emily, is there anything you want from from Doug before we let him go back into the wild of, of auditing. <laughs> She's the question I have left feels very besides the point. So I think I'll save it for another time. Okay. Yes. Doug, before, before I let you go, since you will have a captive audience uh, on the radio show right this moment, uh, what do you feel is really important for community members to understand or to look for when the state talks about economic development? Well, unfortunately, I think there's a lot of misleading information, uh, for example, about migration, about the value of incentives and this sort of thing. And, and, if, and this, too, started, frankly, during the Reagan era, I think, uh, really jump-started. If you say something often enough, it becomes received wisdom. Yes. And, mm-hmm. for example, a, a very good example is every year there are half a dozen uh, well-known entities like Forbes, like the Tax Foundation and others, who produce reports on states' uh, business climates, so-called. The methodologies for those things are laughable, and they do not reflect what's going on on the ground. Yet every media outlet in the country publishes them because they want to fill 
column inches in their newspapers or whatever. I guess that's old school. Sorry, uh, nobody publishes much anymore. But that Olga still really, does. It, that's true. It uh, <laughs> it doesn't poison the discourse, but it sure does. Uh, make it very difficult to have an honest conversation because you're pushing up against this notion that those entities, which have their own biases, have given you honest information and they don't. Mm -hmm. So I would encourage people to, to take everything you hear about economic development with a grain of salt. Everybody's busy. Nobody's got the time to do research on this, but, uh, you know, they should call their state representative, actually. <laughs> Just kidding. I'm no, no, it's fine. I, I love a good phone call. <laughs> but they, anyway, they should take it uh, uh, with a grain of salt. They shouldn't accept everything they hear. And I actually add on to that and say that's true of almost any of those rating indices about anything. Many years ago, when I was working internationally, I did a comparative study of all of the democracy indices that are used about sort of freedom internationally. Hmm. And CFPD those studies are just as skewed and biased as the ones about tax policy or what's a great place to live or where's the safest place. Right. Yeah. Right. Oh, I agree. Which, which goes back to, I think listeners have heard me say this before, why it's so important that you get your news from more than one source, because oh God, yes. I, I often oh, feel yeah. the truth is in the aggregate rather than the individual article. Well, you're pushing against the grain there. Unfortunately, <laughs> people get their news from um, sources that they, that will give them what they want to hear and, and already believe and know. Except for the happy hour. <laughs> Doug, do you have a favorite drink you want to tell our listeners about before we close? A favorite drink? Um, for the season. For the season. Well, mm -hmm. I was just fortunate enough at the co-op yesterday to see that because it's the season, they got in some British Stilton. I'm a big fan of British Stilton, which is a wonderful cheese, uh, most unusual, and it's great with port. Oh, wait, that sounds so elitist. Sorry. <laughs> it's okay. We know you're a progressive. <laughs> we will Actually, years you. ago in Burlington, uh, there were people who, you know, even after Bernie was mayor, referred to us as smoked salmon socialists. Oh, yes. And I said, hey, smoked salmon for everyone. <laughs> That sounds pretty good, actually. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> well, Doug Hoffer, Emily and I want to thank you for being on the happy hour with us today. We just want to remind listeners that we will be back next week with more fun and democracy for your ears. In the meantime, you can find back uh, episodes of the happy hour on the Vermontitude SoundCloud page or the Vermontitude Facebook page. And Emily, if people have questions for you, where can they get more information they can go to emilykornheiser.org they can email me at emilykornheiser.com at sorry emilykornheiser at gmail.com or my legislative email which is ekornheiser at ledge.state.vt.us but that's hard to remember you can stop me in the street you can go to my facebook page or my twitter account and now that autumn has come and winter is coming I have restarted my office hours, so I will be in the co-op cafe every Saturday at 11 a.m., and I'm happy to share a cup of coffee with you. And Doug, if people are more curious about the work you do or any reports your office has put out recently, where can they find that information? They're all at auditor.vermont.gov. And if you want to speak to me, host Olga Peters, you can drop me a message on the Vermontitude Facebook page, SoundCloud page, or of course, you can always find me at the Commons. Thank you so much for tuning in, everyone, and have a wonderful weekend. Thank you, Olga and Emily. Thank you. Thank you, Doug. <laughs> <laughs>